1: The Guardian. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. Fresh back from your travels, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> this week, data scientist Alexander Boxer looks back over the history of astrology and reveals what it tells us about the past and the future of science. And later in the show, we'll be talking about the books that transformed our outlook on life. Alexander Boxer has a doctorate in physics from MIT, a master's degree in the history of science from Oxford, and a bachelor's in classical language from Yale. His debut book looks at the surprising history and science of astrology from a data perspective. Richard Lee began the interview by asking what on earth a data scientist is doing writing about astrology and horoscopes. That's a
2: great question. So let me start out by saying that I myself am not an astrologer. I don't believe in astrology, but uh, I became very interested in, in the question about what astrology is, and in particular how astrology can can be a mirror to some of the uh, very empirical, very data-driven algorithms that we're generating today to to talk about our personal preferences, et cetera. Things that astrologers in the past were were
3: also very interested in. As you say, I mean, the, the astrology of the past, that stretches back quite a long way. The first, um, the first flowerings of astrology were in Egypt, Babylon, Rome and Alexandria. But the central figure, you, you argue, is that the, the, the man who made all previous astrology superfluous to the working astrologer was Claudius Ptolemy. Who was he and, and what did he achieve? He is a Greek astronomer living in Roman Egypt, in Roman Alexandria,
2: and he comes up with this very comprehensive system for how you can use mathematics to compute the positions of the stars and planets at any time in the past, present, or future. Now, this is, of course, a great exercise in astronomy and mathematics, but he was doing it as many of the mathematicians and astronomers were at the time because there was this great practical need to know these Positions because they were used for astro- for astrology, so Ptolemy writes his famous astronomy book, the Almagest. Uh, he also writes a famous astrology book called the Tetra that was extremely influential, and it was uh, so much so that it was remained part of the curriculum that Copernicus himself had to study from when he went when he went to Bologna. To, to study astronomy. And of course, you had to study astronomy if you wanted a degree in medicine because you had to know astrology in order to make proper diagnoses and give prescriptions. So all of this stuff is really uh, developing hand in hand for for, for thousands of years. So he really sets the groundwork for so much of the astrology as we have it today. He also uh, he was the ancient world's greatest geographer. So there's this sort of fun section in his Tetra Biblios, his astrology book where he talks about astrological geography so it's sort of the one place in all of his writings where he gets to combine astronomy astrology and geolo- and geography together and he has this whole map of the world that he lays out and he talks about how each of the different ethnicities from from Britain all the way you know into into Persia and India uh, their their peculiar quirks and habits are determined by by the stars and planets
3: Contemporary accounts of, of Ptolemy in histo- history of science books often get him almost the other way around, that he was kind of a great astronomer, a great geographer, and they kind of try and leave the astrology to one side. You're, you're suggesting that that's kind of backwards. It was actually the geography and the astronomy were just ways and means for him of getting to astrology. All of these things are happening together. They're, they're interwoven and braided together,
2: and it, it, it's not uh, fair to, ex- to remove one of these things from the history. That just like it's not fair to remove astrology from the history of astronomy or even the history of science, uh, let's recall that the entire scientific revolution begins with astronomy and begins with this realization that certain problems that physicists had claimed were their own, actually this other group, the mathematicians, had uh, all of a sudden realized that they were able to make claims that previously only physicists were able to talk about, namely, what is the structure of the solar system of the universe? And this is really coming out of this astrological problem. These are the people who are pushing the, the ball forward with mathematics and what sorts of questions you can answer with numbers and mathematics. In the ancient world, there always was this strict division of you know what questions were physical questions, what questions were mathematical questions, and the interplay between the two was always very unclear and there were usually strict divisions saying that well numbers are 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 pure they're eternal they're good for describing certain things but they're definitely not good for describing uh, many physical processes in the world which involve change which involve things corrupting and growing Uh, and so the scientific revolution was in many ways possibly its most important ways a mathematical revolution where it became clear that at least for certain questions mathematics was the way you had to go
3: and and answer them. Going back to the scientific revolution, as you do, I mean, there's something that histories of science often do is leap straight from the Greeks to Copernicus, missing out all the stuff in the middle. But in the book, you argue that there was a whole lot of work going on in Baghdad Without which the scientific revolution never would have happened. But aren't these technical advances, the kind of precision instruments, the the accurate measurements that were going on in the Arabic world, aren't they necessary but not sufficient conditions for advances in science? Necessary but not sufficient, I think, is
2: is a fair statement, and I think you know everybody would recognize the importance of. Arabic contributions to the history of astronomy and the history of science but when you scratch me at the surface and, and you say well how does it really work uh, I think a lot of people find themselves a, a little befuddled uh, in particular you're looking at someone like Copernicus and they perceive the scientific revolution as being nothing more than a, a, a theoretical revolution or, or a metaphysical revolution that really the key element was Copernicus reordering the order of the cosmos. I, I just have this very strong sense that, that science develops with practical applications hand in hand, that our theoretical understanding of the world is very much shaped by the practical applications to which these things can be applied. And so the, uh, the Arabic contribution is fascinating to me because astrology is tremendously important at this time. Some of the, the, the key figures... Uh, are, are both astronomers and astrologers. There's a tremendous amount of work de- being done in astrology, and I think it leaves people very uncomfortable when they have to ask, well, are these developments in astrology, should they be considered important advances in science? But what's backing up all of these things is, as you mentioned, the technological development... Is, is continuing apace, just the, the more precise instruments, the larger instruments, the more precise uh, algorithms for determining planetary positions, and more people looking at Ptolemy and, and, and realizing that Ptolemy does not have all the answers, even though it's Copernicus who finally switches the order. The idea that the sun would be at the center of the The cosmos was not new with Copernicus, that idea had been known since ancient times, and the evidence for it was considered to be not persuasive. It's really not until uh, you have people like Kepler and Tycho Brahe, and then of course Galileo, where the evidence that had been missing in the ancient and Arabic world finally becomes overwhelming to take this, again, very ancient
3: idea and
2: realise that it was
3: correct. Going back to the ancients, as you do, I mean, you're pretty hard on Lucretius, the, the Roman poet who proposed a picture of the universe consisting of atoms swerving in the void, suggesting that his, the uncanny resemblance of his metaphysics to modern science is nothing but a lucky guess. But he was proposing a mechanism that would explain features of the world we live in, and he turned out to be very much right. What more could you ask? So I happen to be a
2: big fan of Lucretius. I think it's, uh, his, his poem is a beautiful poem. And the number of things he gets right is, is almost shocking. But yes, I think if you're interested in the history of science, how do you deal with characters like this? And in, uh, you know, in particular, how do you deal with characters on the other side who are getting some of these ideas wrong? And I think a person like Lucretius, you have to recognize that, uh, yes, he can seem that he's thousands of years ahead of his time. But if you're making these metaphysic- metaphysical statements about the universe without any physics to back it up, yes, uh, so I, I make the claim that it's a bit of a, of a lucky guess. And, you know, we have to be careful when we look back at these ancient thinkers, uh, you know, what, what really is driving advance in science? It, it's not simply about getting the metaphysics right. For me, it's about moving the technology forward in, in physics. The ability to actually understand and and demonstrate that the world is made of atoms, of course, has to wait many thousands of years after Lucretius. And so the the, the argument is a larger argument that I apply to astrology, too, that, yes, these, these characters are uh, ultimately incorrect in how they see what's driving uh, the universe and our interactions with it. But, curiously, they are the ones who are the most adventurous and and the most forceful in pushing a mathematical way of understanding the world. So much so that the term mathematician, mathematicus, in the ancient world comes to be synonymous with astrologers. These are the only people who are... Astrological work is the mathematical work that people do professionally. And a lot of people thought this was very silly that you could describe all all of these human affairs with mathematics. But... And in many cases, they were correct. But what I think people failed to appreciate was how much mathematics would, once it became ripe and mature, be
3: able to describe the physical world in which we live. And and this is the world we live in today. Yes, but in many cases, you say they weren't correct. It was just plain wrong. I mean, don't we need to discuss deceit? Astrology just doesn't work. And that's been clear for a long time. I mean, you've got Maino Maineri confessing to Petrarch in the 14th century that it was just fake. So aren't astrologers, even if they've got some clever instruments and fancy mathematics, aren't they just not playing the game? So some of them, and,
2: and Mino Mineri is a, a fascinating uh, character who I uh, talk about in the book, and, and yes, he does express his frustration and, and he realizes that he's playing a game that he himself doesn't quite believe in. But I, don't actually, I actually think Min- Mineri is probably sincere in his belief that these methods may work. I think it's really not until after someone like Kepler, where astrologers really have to ask themselves, what what are they doing and why? and uh, But I think that Kepler, to me, is the dividing line. He himself was very interested in what you could do with the mathematics of astronomy and astrology. He pursues them both vigorously. And by the end of his career, after he's had these tremendous success- successes with, with astronomy and finding within the data that he's looking at his planetary, his laws of planetary motion, he's also casting horoscopes with his own hand, over a thousand of them, looking for patterns too. He's, he's not able to find them. But up until that time, I think it was a very open and honest question whether these methods would bear any fruit. And I think, you know, uh, people make this, this uh, connection a lot, but I think it's a fair connection that if you look at something like meteorology today, it's very difficult to predict the weather and many times people do it wrong, people do it badly, but that doesn't mean that uh, there's not value in at least attempting to push the technology forward
3: and push these predictive models forward. And do you think that that means we should be cautious about these new techniques, these new big data techniques? Oh, of course, uh, and and working,
2: let's say, in the trenches of it, I get to see more horrible models than, 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 than good models. That doesn't mean the technology isn't uh, an exciting technology to be around, but like with anything with a lot of hype, most you have to separate the wheat from the from the chaff. And to a certain extent, my book was started by looking at some of these really tremendously bad models that have had you've seen in the press. Uh, in, in particular, let's say the stock market crash and the and the housing market crisis that. All sorts of economic models claimed could never happen. And uh, most famously in the United States, all of the election forecasts for 2016, some of which gave Hillary Clinton a 99 percent chance of winning. Now, all of hmm. these models. We know how that turned out. We do know how that turned out. Uh, and all these models rely on uh, very sophisticated statistics and mathematics. And part of me wanted to say. Are are these doing any better than astrology? Wouldn't it be fun to set up an astrological baseline just to see what models could even beat superstitious astrology? And that's sort of what got me thinking that uh, although I have a long-standing interest in the history of science and the history of astronomy, I don't really, I didn't really know much about astrology and I certainly didn't know how it worked as a technical practice and that was what I was very interested in is astrology as a technology and sort of seeing them as the original data scientists. I think we think today of astrology as a, a form of cosmic mysticism, which I, th- I think I think that largely describes it correctly today. And so people look to the past and think that past astrologers would also be this species of cosmic mystic. And I, and I think that that's actually mistaken. I look at these ancient astrologers and see them uh, in very much the same vein as, as a modern statistician or a modern data scientist. So
3: if astrologers almost by accident invented astronomy and launched a scientific revolution. Should we expect a similar kind of revolution from the developments in, in, in data science today? Well, of course, you can never, you, who, whoever, who can really
2: predict the future? Let's say uh, distinct from an astrologer, I, I do not believe that it's, uh, any of us can really predict the future. But I think it's an, <laughs> it's an interesting question where people who, who support pure science uh, oftentimes make the claim that, well, you have to be investigating all of these things because you don't really know where it will lead. And in particular, from a practical application point of view, many practical applications have been developed by studying things which were were originally designed to do something else. And I think actually these arguments work very well to astrology, at least to ancient astrology, where... Uh, I would argue that astrology is the practical application that is driving all of this. When you look at questions of uh, charting the positions of the sun, the moon, and the stars, those had always been very important for timekeeping, regulating calendars, and and also navigation and surveying. But uh, if you ask the question, what use was there for predicting with great precision the, the coordinates of the planets, there's no practical application in the ancient world except for astrology and and yet for thousands of years people are paying money to support these observations people are interested in improving these observations and again it's these observations which uh, perhaps a surprise to everyone involved led to the scientific revolution and the modern world that, that we know today so it's a good example that yes the f- it's very hard to predict where 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 the future will go and something as off uh, script as astrology may actually be the driving force of what has turned into our modern, very anti astrological perception of the universe.
1: That was Alexander Boxer. A Scheme of Heaven, the History of Astrology and the Search for Our Destiny in Data is published by Profile Books in the UK and W.W. Norton in the US. After the break, we'll be talking about the books that changed our understanding of the world.
0: Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com ACAST.
3: Too often in science podcasts, we hear voices not of the people who might be affected by new discoveries, but of those who made them. What if we flip that on its head?
4: Like, my father's 50, and praise God that he's still alive, but that's through kidney transplant, ripping a vein out of his leg to put in his arm. That's through having um, eight units of blood every month, and that's touch and go if he actually gets that. This could stop that.
3: With our Common Threads podcast, we travelled around the country to hear people's questions, hopes and fears when it comes to something called gene editing. It's a technology that could one day allow us to rewrite... DNA.
4: Actually, my son has severe learning difficulties, so he doesn't have capacity to make any decision for himself. I'd say that he's very happy in his skin. The only person that has suffered because of him is me. Would
1: I change him if I could? No. My daughter's got an extra chromosome, and I would absolutely delete that. And it's not to change her, it's to change that extra chromosome that holds her back.
4: It's important as well to give context because we're all here and we're all people of African origin and I think that very much shapes our response to things like this because our history of being abused by science Mm -hmm. shapes us.
3: To have a listen, just search Common Threads on your podcast app or head over to theguardian.com where you'll find all the content from our Gene Gap project.
1: Welcome back to the Guardian Books Podcast. You may currently be following the Harvey Weinstein trial on the news. Whilst we won't pass comment on the overall case, I did find it interesting that on Tuesday, Weinstein's lawyer complained that a juror was reading books on predatory older men and reviewing them online on Goodreads during the proceedings. Well, that's according to Vulture. It just got me thinking, to what degree books can shape or change our perspective on life, people and cultures? while also signalling who we are. Sean, there are a couple of issues in this, aren't there?
4: Yeah, so it's quite a strange uh, example. Um, I guess it, 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 it raises an interesting question about whether our tastes in books can signal uh, what our political beliefs or our uh, moral beliefs are. Um, and so um, in this case, uh, Weinstein's defence team went over the juror's Goodreads account and saw that she had recently read My Dark Vanessa um, by Kate Elizabeth Russell, which is a really uh, sort of buzzy uh, recent novel that has uh, recently come out in the US and is just coming out in the UK. Um, and it's been getting a lot of press because it's about a woman who reconsiders her teenage relationship with a predatory teacher. Um, after another woman goes public about her relationship with that teacher. And um, she was also reading Vanessa Springora's memoir, Le Consentiment, uh, which is a, a, a French book um, which is also about a woman's relationship, uh, Vanessa's relationship with a, with an older older male. And uh, the, the judge ruled that this juror could stay as she was reading this book but she wasn't reviewing it. So she'd put on Goodreads that she was reading Springora's memoir, but she wasn't reviewing it just yet. Um, and it's so interesting to think that our books might sort of signal where our sympathies might lie, in this case, in a, in a, in a, lead, in a legal case. I've noticed
1: on Goodreads, which I actually increasingly use for research. I, I find it's very interesting if I'm if I want to find out what how a, a, an author is regarded by a general readership rather than by the critics. Say, I look on Goodreads, and quite often authors signal their membership of a certain sort of literature by reviewing. Uh,
4: the books by a a, a sort of iconic author in their area Mm, exactly yes and that was actually the case with this um, with this juror because this juror is also an author herself and uh, she uh, has also written books about predatory older men, apparently. Um, so I, I kind of get maybe on I the place a bit of, it. of product placement. <laughs> my Weinstein might be <laughs> my Weinstein's defense team might be concerned about that. Um, but uh, she, uh, yeah, it, it, it seems that she uh, also is, is reading uh, within that sphere as well, which is like quite a normal thing. Like quite a lot of authors uh, do use uh, Goodreads accounts to sort of signal what, what they are reading as well. So. This
1: brings up the whole issue of, of books signalling who you are and what status we should give to them. Mm. And and there's always this party game that comes up at least once a year when all the politicians set off on their summer holidays, isn't there? Oh, um, yeah. of what, have, what are they going to take with them? dull, dry reading lists <laughs> that you can ever produce. <laughs> when, when Barack Obama um, revealed his summer reading in 2015, our Guardian critic Mark Lawson noted that one of his choices was a biography of the first US president, Washington. And L- Lawson said, by telling his fellow Americans that he's spending his penultimate summer in office with that that book Obama might as well be saying Mount Rushmore now how about it <laughs> that's pretty harsh yeah. but I mean and we know that Obama is a, is a genuine reader well, who, who yeah, has very good taste I
4: find that amazing though that, that Obama's not even president anymore and he still releases a reading list like that sort of shows that he did actually have some cultural cred that people still are interested what he's reading every year yeah
1: and and i mean that is one couldn't fault uh, one can never fault the books that he had on his list i'm always a bit more concerned when by politicians who name ayn rand's crypto fascist fountainhead as one of their favorites and you know both donald trump and the newly departed uk chancellor of the exchequer sajid javid claimed its architect protagonist howard rourke as a hero his gung-ho go-it-alone attitudes as have a load of Hollywood stars from Brad Pitt to to
4: Sandra Bullock. (laughs) I swear like half of the people that claim Fountainhead is their favorite book they haven't read it. (laughs) They no, just got this idea it, in their my head. head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is there's a funny there's a funny reputation that some authors have that precede them. So, um, and this is particularly a thing now with like dating apps. If there's ever a guy that says that he loves reading David Foster Wallace or Haruki Murakami, um, that's like a massive red flag. It basically shows that he's a literary know-it-all. <laughs> well,
1: then, that, then there's the the recently proclaimed Lee Child fan club, which the author Joanna Trollope, who's a different sort of genre novelist, described as reverse snobbery. Yes, I find that really...
4: It's really interesting how there are certain authors that some you would say, intellectual types deign to read or deign to admit that they like. Yeah, and, it's, and there's, it's a, like long okay. there's a long history of that. There's a long history of that. And it's
1: usually people, hard-boiled writers, isn't yeah. it? Like, I mean, going all the way back to Dashiell Hammett I see, and Raymond Chandler.
4: Raymond is one of my favourite authors. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not to say that they're not good. No. But, but it's not to say that Joanna Trollope isn't good No, as well. But people wouldn't sort but of confess to... people infer something yeah. from you liking Joanna Trollope and they infer something from you liking Murakami. And I, I like Murakami, but... I've gotta say it has actually kind of rather tainted my uh my view of him, uh, having read so many anecdotes about the kinds of guys that like Murakami, <laughs> you do start to really notice just how creepy he is about women. Women, when you read his novels.
1: <laughs> so, what about um, books that have transformed you, or that you know have become important in the sen- your sense of who you are? You've just you're just back from holiday, aren't you?
4: Yeah. Lynn? So I've been on sabbatical for the last month, and the joke is always, oh, you go and write your novel, and I haven't. I've just read a lot of other people's novels, um, and uh, I was uh, I was travelling. Uh, in Mexico and I decided while I was away I was going to read purely for pleasure and I decided to go back and read an author that was I felt was very uh, formative for me and um, her name's Tamora Pierce, she's an American young adult novelist and she wrote a series of quartets all set in the same fantasy universe and the first is called The Song of the Lioness and it's all about a girl who disguises herself as a boy to go train as a knight um, because in this, in this world they don't allow women to uh, serve in the military and uh, the, each book is uh, progresses over time and by the end of that quartet she's uh, in her early 20s um, but because all the books are same in, set in the same universe um, uh, other quartets that come after that don't follow her but she's a background character so you get to see this character go from about 10 years old to in her 40s and um it's just it was really really interesting to go back and read something that I had felt was very important to me because it was it was a book that uh, all of these books were about women and they were a lot about how women are treated uh differently uh to men and I had uh, not really been aware of gender inequality when I first read them I was about 10 or 11 when I first read them and um, going back and reading something when you're almost 30 that you liked as a child and finding actually that they're quite sophisticated in terms of how they handle romantic relationships and friendships um, and uh, how they also teach quite gentle lessons about gender inequality but also quite serious lessons and um, was really great I was so pleased that actually I did have quite good taste as a 10 year old and I really enjoyed going back and reading these books so I, I read 13 books while I was on holiday and 12 of them were by Tomorrow Pierce that's pretty impressive that, that was great
1: yeah, well, did,
4: what did you do for your for, for, for leisure uh, <laughs> during this holiday of yours? <laughs> didn't talk to my partner very much I just did a lot of reading um, but it was, it was a really wonderful experience to be able to read them as an adult and go oh god these are really genuinely very sophisticated works um, and like genuinely very touching to see how characters age and how characters, particularly how the men she wrote treated uh, the women with lots of respect. Like the women do encounter challenges because of their gender, but they're also surrounded by a a wonderful amount of very good men that treat the women with a huge amount of respect.
1: So could you see yourself in the books as you were reading them? Your young self. I mean, Absolutely. could you could you remember what it felt like to read them the first time round? Yes,
4: and I could remember there were like key scenes and instances where I. It was like, oh god, I yeah, this has sort of always been hanging in the back of my head. Like, I remember the excitement of this scene or the shock of this particular chapter. Um, and I could even do it just like I'd turn a page and there'd be the, the new chapter uh, title, and I'd go, oh god, yes, I remember this bit. So, even before I've read it, um, and you know, I was reading these almost 20 years ago, so it's a really, really fun experience. Um, we, we were talking
1: earlier, weren't we, about whether we actually read like that, whether we read for transformational reasons, or whether we relate to books in that way. And and I think that I probably generally don't. But one book that really, really affected me, and I think has really changed me in a way that I am still processing was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Half of a Yellow Sun. Mm. Because I grew up in Nigeria during the Civil War, but I was in the North. And so I was fed propaganda. And when you're fed propaganda as a child, even though you're told that It was propaganda. It's quite difficult to lose that sense of of your childhood attachment to a particular vision of history. Mm. And it wasn't until I read Half of a Yellow Sun that I understood, really understood in a sort of visceral emotional way that atrocities that were happening in that country while I was living a happy life cycling around untroubled roads and things Mm. a few hundred miles away.
4: And so had you encountered much about Nigeria in fiction before? yeah yes but but actually that but not the
1: biafran side of the civil war mm. and and you know I, I sort of knew it but i didn't know it yes <laughs> and i think that that's where fiction can actually do go to places that that facts don't they mm. can actually unlock parts of you and when i say i'm or i'm still processing it 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 sort of made me realise that there are parts of my childhood that were based on an illusion, and when, once you come to that realisation, you begin to go through all sorts of doors, and you know, and the whole edifice comes tumbling down. And of course, in my case, part of the edifice is the edifice of post-colonialism. The you know the feeling that we were post-colonial, therefore we weren't the same as those people in South Africa and East Africa, but actually, we were, and we were part of a Big conspiracy to not to tell the truth about the most dreadful things.
4: Mm, God, <laughs> and you've met you've met Jim Amanda before. Have you talked to her about this?
1: Uh, it, briefly, briefly, yeah. yes. When when it first came out, but um, yeah, it's 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 sort of. I, I do feel really changed by it. Mm. Anyway, if you, our listeners, have any thoughts about books that have changed you, please do get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Isabel Greenberg about Bronte Juvenilia and the long-awaited third instalment in Hilary Mantel's Cromwell trilogy, The Mirror and the Light. Dum da <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's a book that everyone's been waiting for for about
1: ten it's, years. It's got so many expectations. Oh, right? I on saw
4: it. a guy reading it on the tube last night. He had a proof copy, uh, and like, because you, 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 you resisted could, the temptation to seize it out of his hand. I kept sort of like almost trying to waggle my eyebrows at him, like oh, you work for a publisher or <laughs> something. It's it's huge though. It's almost a thousand pages. Anyway,
1: sorry. Anyway, well, that's going We're to keep excited. us busy, isn't it, for a few <laughs> yeah. months? Um, but for now, from me, Claire Armistead, and me, Shan Kane, and our producer, Esther Apokujeni, Thanks for listening, and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to
4: theguardian.com/podcasts.
0: Listen up! I won't sugarcoat it.